another episode of Adam's Corner. Uh, I'm Adam Long, your host, and on this episode, I am speaking with a former guest of Movie Geeks United, which was my former podcast, uh, Mr. Tony Macklin, who was a frequent guest to Movie Geeks United. And those of you who have followed me as I uh, started my own endeavor will be familiar with uh, Mr. Tony Macklin and his uh, wonderful film criticism, always insightful. Uh, and uh, I agree with him more often than not, I must admit. And even if I don't agree, I always learn something because Tony is a... Uh, is uh, very, as I said, insightful. And um, so those of you who are listening to my podcast and aren't uh, familiar with Movie Geeks United, uh, for for those of you, I am going to give uh, Tony the opportunity to tell you a little bit about himself and how he got into um, uh, film journalism and uh, the magazine that he used to publish. And there's uh, some interesting stories. And then we're going to go from there into a discussion of 1974, the year in film, which was an interesting year for him because he spent some time on the set of the film Earthquake, but I'm burying, uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself rather. So anyway, let's let you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your your days uh, in the magazine business and, and other endeavors. Well, Adam, uh, I'm the worst possible one to talk about myself. I hate self-promotion if I were better at it, I would. Uh, they'd know me already, um, <laughs> but I'm not. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. I uh, graduated from Villanova, had a master's at Villanova, and taught there for a while. Then I taught for thirty some years at the University of Dayton. I taught uh, in the English department, and I was one of the first people to teach film. Remember back. During that time, during the 60s and 70s and on, film wasn't taught in school. It wasn't. It would. It was taught at the University of California, and it was taught at NYU and a couple other places. But but it wasn't taught regularly. When I first taught it at the University of Dayton, I got a tremendous reaction against my taught, teaching courses on film in the English department. They didn't think the, that film was an art or could be an art form. And so I started in a great place because I was right at the beginning of an, an appreciation in this country about, about film. And instead of getting my Ph.D., I, I created a magazine, Film Heritage, and fortunately I got a nice distributor, and it went all over the, the world. And I would go to New York and it'd be in Greenwich Village, and I'd really feel some pride in that. And uh, I, I did interviews. I really got my career as an, as an interviewer. I, I interviewed John Wayne, and he said, don't call me, call me Duke, because people who know John, call me John, don't know, know who I am. And at the end of the interview, he sent me this. He said, you... Uh, Tony, you called me in Venice. Nobody has, and that was a nice uh, moment. And I was telling you just before this that um, I, I interviewed Charles Nest and on the set for an hour and a half on the set of Earthquake, and I didn't realize one thing about you talking, you inviting me on, 
was I had to do some research into myself <laughs> as well as as film, and it was really a a, a, a great interview. I I've have always thought of Hepton politically and being uh, uh, the ER a spokesman. Um, um, mm-hmm. The, the NRIM, sure, sure, sure. On um, uh, spokesman, and he really was an intelligent guy, and I had forgotten how intelligent he was. Well, anyway, in uh, sight and sounds decadal poll, every second year of each decade, they put out an issue that does critics and filmmakers best films of all time. And I was in 72, I was one of two American academics that were in the poll. Um, and that was, that was a nice uh, uh, start. It, it, you, you would, it would be better if you would ask me questions because talking about myself is something I do not like to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can start with some questions. I just wanted to uh, give people a little bit of your background so they know, you know, what what uh, what your what what where you came from and what you uh, contributed uh, in that great decade of the 1970s, which was the time, as you and I know, it was a, a great time for film and films about. Uh, I think it was the, the golden age. Yes, yes, yes. And, and around 74, which we're going to be talking about, that was the apex of the new Hollywood movement of personal auteurs and a whole lot of personal films. Blockbusters as well, uh, Towering Inferno and the uh, Earthquake as, as, as well as that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, there were many, many great films. Uh, I've recently been reading, uh, I know it's been out for about four years now, but The uh, the Big Goodbye, the book about the making of Chinatown that uh, Sam Wasson uh, published in 2020. I was late to the game on that. I've been reading that, and he was uh, uh, there, there was a piece in there where he was talking about on the Paramount lot you had uh, Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, and Day of the Locust all shooting at the same time. And that uh, I, I just can't imagine, uh, you know, what an embarrassment of riches there. With uh, I, I think if if uh, Godfather Two hadn't won the Oscar for the best film of the year, Chinatown would have. And it really was a personal film for mm-hmm. director uh, Roman Polanski because of Sharon Tate's death, murder by the Manson yes. group, and he changed the ending. The ending of that film originally was written by Robert Town, and he, they were going to escape to uh, um, Mexico. And instead, he had her, he had her killed. And I, I, I consider Chinatown one of the best American films ever made, uh, not only one of the best of uh, 1974. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I was amazed to, to learn that, you know, they, they pretty much... John Alonzo and his uh, camera crew—they were pretty much designed the the uh, final sequence uh, on, on the spot. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that was storyboarded. They just kind of made it up as they went along, and the way he lit it, and uh, the the crane shot that that closes the film, and just all of that was done on the. But floor. you all, you have to give the most credit, mm-hmm. I think, to Roman Polanski, sure, sure. the the director. 
I mean, they they were doing what what he let them do, what he wanted to do. Yeah. I think he wanted his personal grief and sadness and sense of loss mm-hmm. to permeate the ending of that film. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right about that. I just thought it was amazing how Alonzo was able to put his technical expertise to to work so quickly to get what Polanski wanted from him. And uh, it was uh, and 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 do it so perfectly because it looks like it was storyboarded, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't look like it was made up on the fly, but and yet it was so uh, apparently. So yeah. Well, that's... so much so much of film is is made up immediately, mm-hmm. is, is impulsive. Being at the right place at the right time, I, I remember talking to Marty Scorsese and and um, Alice doesn't live here anymore ends with his shot and it's symbolic but he didn't even realize that it was symbolic he they just there was a some some ending that he had in mind and he's always i mean the good directors are not only pros they're not only professional but the best ones are personal artists who are creative and go where the creativity takes them Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's true. That's true. Uh, good, good point. Well, um, so. Hey, by the way, you can argue with me if you'd <laughs> like. Somewhere along the line, I, you know, I know the, the, I know everything about nothing and nothing about everything. So, <laughs> so I, I am vulnerable. <laughs> well, well, some, some of, uh, well, most of what you're saying here is is stuff that I agree with. So I, I hate to be. A yes man, but but I just don't happen to disagree with anything you've said so far. So. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 I do not dislike your saying yes. <laughs> Aff- affirmation, affirmation is a virtue I appreciate. True, true, true. Uh, that I, I I feel the same. Uh, well, what we'll do here is we'll just go through some of the uh, films of the year, the big ones. And uh, if if it's a film that you covered for your magazine or you had any uh, interactions with any of the talent, you can say, I- I've got a story sure. there. Or if you don't, then we'll just move on. And we'll just, uh, since it's 50 years ago, we're looking back at... Um, uh, it's what? 50 years. I know I can't believe it. Uh, it's just un- <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, don't don't want to think about it, but and yet it was. So... Um, so we'll start with February, because uh, in January you just had a lot of, uh, well, you had a few things there that might be worth noting. We'll, we'll mention a few of these. Uh, California Split, the Robert Altman film. I don't know if you uh, have any stories from that, but that's considered to be, uh, and Freebie and the Bean, both of those uh, released early. California Split is one of my favorite films of all time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a gambling man. And I talked to Bob about gambling. He was a gambling man too, mm-hmm. so we have we had a lot in common. And uh, I thought he 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 did uh, two films that year, if I remember correctly. He did uh, California Split and Thieves Like Us, and the yes. longer Bob was right in the area too. Yeah, that was a um, year before, but but but, but right. barely. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing, sometimes films don't get out to the public until the next, the year after the May. That's true. They're yeah. released only in the very big markets in December mm-hmm. to be eligible uh, for the Oscars. But like, for instance, uh, Marty Scorsese, uh, his Mean Streets, which again is one of my favorite films, um, 
was at the end of um, 73 and wasn't released nationally in 74. So I put it um, with uh, on my best 10 list of the next year. Also, in the next year, he did his fourth film. And Marty isn't considered much of a, a, a director's of women, but he did uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and Ellen Burstyn won the Oscar for Best Performance as an Actress, and Diane uh, uh, Ladd um, got a nomination as Supporting Actress for that film as well. So sometimes one year leaks over into another, and in, in, in the case of, of Scorsese and... Um, um, Altman, they did. Yes, yeah, that that is, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, uh, I think Burstyn was uh, keen on getting Scorsese to direct that film because it was her project, I think, and uh, and she was, you know, had seen what he could do with Mean Streets, and so she uh, kind of recommended him the story that I get. Now, you would know more than I would because you actually talked to him, so uh, during this Well, the the interesting thing about, he, he told me, that in Mean Streets, 95% of it really happened, actually happened. Mm-hmm. And in this film, the, there was one of the characters, one of the subordinate characters, that he said was himself. Uh, so he put that, he was, he was one of the first really personal directors that changed the whole um, concept of film often making a personal statement. Now, I think he tried to with uh, Killers of the uh, Flower Moon, Mm -hmm. which I didn't much like because I think he tried to move the New York mob movement out to uh, the West. And to me, it was redundant. And I'd, I'd really like to know what is personal for Mar- Marty because I'm sure there is there are personal moments in that film for for him. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That you can you can you can sense that there are, but I um yeah I felt like it was um just I really I don't think the length of it was the problem for me as much as the the characters were just not very well developed. Well, I didn't think it, the question is whether the length is dull or yeah. not, and yes. often it's it's the it's the viewer who's dull. Mm-hmm. Not the film, that, but in this yeah. case, I think it was Marty, and he had a problem with it. Remember, they wrote it originally from from the it wasn't the FBI yet, but the investigator's point of view that uh, oh, I always forget his name, his favorite star right now. Yeah, DiCaprio. Yeah, DiCaprio. DiCaprio was going to play an, an agent, and instead. They said no, Marty, and they realized that it was the white man's film, and they wanted to change it to the Indian women and what happened to them. And the change just didn't seem um, that he was in control, command of it, that he changed it, and it worked on some levels, but but the change probably weakened the film yeah i i, I would 
Yeah, I hate I hate to keep agreeing, but I'm right there with you. Uh, <laughs> we'll do it again. Hang in there. <laughs> well, we'll move on to some of these other 1974 titles. Now, some of them, uh, and like I said, some of these you may have not have uh, had any uh, interaction with any of the talent, but I'll just throw them out Why there. Why do you say that? I may have had interaction with everyone. You may have. I don't know. You can tell me. I'll wait I mean, the, the trial of Billy Jack. I was going to mention was, that one. What did you... Well, Go ahead and mention that. Well, I will, well it. you uh, the trial of Billy Jack, of course, was uh, the sequel to uh, Billy Jack, which was a follow-up to uh, the uh, uh, Born Losers. And uh, Tom Laughlin, of course, had to sue Warner Brothers uh, because he felt like they didn't promote Billy Jack. Uh, and then he sued them, and then they still didn't promote it correctly. So he took it upon himself to do this four-walling thing, which was a new right. way of promoting films. And, and so uh, it became one of the... Uh, a smash hit, and so Trial of Billy Jack was the third, uh, and it uh, was one of the top five grossing films of its year. Did you talk? It was third. It was third. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. And it's kind of forgotten. By the way, by the way, um, it ran, Billy Jack ran in Dayton, Ohio, where Mm -hmm. I was teaching, and right, I was the film critic for one of the two local papers, and Tom Laughlin, threatened to punch me in the mouth um, <laughs> now, this because is the I thought, I, thought I said I thought the, I said the film is phony and I I was a troll before a troll I have very seldom been a troll in my life I cert, certainly am not in today mm-hmm. but I really was 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 absolutely negative about the whole Billy Jack phenomenon yeah and it's a it's a really long movie too, because the uh, second, the the uh, Billy Jack's only like an hour and fifty minutes, I think, or as Trial of Billy Jack is almost three hours, and it's a real tough sit. Uh, I have to admit, it's uh, a real dumb film. Yeah. So that's one of, one of the things that makes it a real tough sit. Yeah, it's and he contradicts himself because uh, you know he's Mister Peace, but then he 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 uh, yeah. fights every yeah. chance he gets, and so you know I call that f- part of the phoniness. Part of the, <laughs> yes, he, he's just he's just a phony guy. Yeah, but uh, we not we, funny, phony. Yes, yes, but we do have to mention it because it was you know it's funny how a film like that could make more money than Godfather Part Two, uh, and yet it's completely forgotten. You know, so it, it is interesting to to note that and i am old enough to remember it as well you know when it was a big deal and there were all the spots on television and all that so i uh you know um so another one we'll talk about is that's entertainment you know which was a compilation of uh mgm musical numbers and they shot some of that on the mgm lot right before it was getting to be raised uh because i think kirk Krikorian had sold it off uh because he just didn't care about it anymore he'd bought out mgm and uh, was going to sell, and so they they shot these uh, some of the, a lot of the uh, talent who was involved in these uh, musicals uh, to do these uh, wraparound sequences, and then they uh, intercut these classic dance sequences. And so, did you have any interaction with any of the people involved in that's entertainment, or? Uh... Uh, no, I really didn't. So we, we ha- you don't have to agree me- with me on that one. <laughs> well, it was kind of a surprise hit. They didn't think it would do. You know, as well as it did, and it did. So oh, it's, well. a, it's a it's a good it's a entertaining film. It really is. No and, question. 
Yeah, and then two two years later they did a, a second one and, and even a third one in the '80s. So it uh, you know, uh, so we'll move along. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was another. That's Clint Eastwood, of course, uh, and this was uh, one of the. Uh, I don't think it was in the top five grossing films, but it was. It's no, it was. Well. Let me let me give you the top six grossing films. Now here here's the okay. question: the same director did the first and fourth film. And then we can talk about films today. But who was it? Who directed the first and fourth most money, biggest money makers of the year of mm. 1974? Gosh, I was well. It can't be John Gillerman because he uh, a Towering Inferno made money, but it, it, he didn't have a another one uh, other than Towering Inferno, so that that, right. that immediately discredits him. Um, Gosh, uh, and it, w- would it be Coppola? But then God, there's Scott no. too. And, see, see, and I, I don't expect anybody to, to to think of it. I wouldn't have if I didn't research it. Mel Brooks. Oh, that's right. He had yeah, the Blazing number Saddles one hit with Blazing Saddles, right. and the number four hit with Young Frankenstein. Yep. And and yet, in a sense, that comes in that, that come, 50 years later we have the the question about a film that makes the most money does that make it the best film with the whole the whole argument about uh, about barbie that uh, mm-hmm. uh box office is often irrec- uh, uh, irrelevant the 19th was chinatown yeah, and I think China. So, so uh, I, I, I think Barbie was a fine film, a very, very good film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I probably agree that Greta Garbo, Greta Garbo, <laughs> Gerwig, <laughs> Greta Gerwig. I, I know it was Gigi, uh, Greta Gerwig. Gerwig. Uh, by the way, after she, after she had the success. She and her partner Noah Baumbach finally got married after 12 years of partnership. So something came, uh, special came out of that for her. <laughs> but but also, to unite them. <laughs> who who do you take out? Yeah. Put Gerwig in. The same argument could be made for um, um, Payne, Alexander Payne. He didn't get a nomination, even though. Um, the holdovers did get a nomination. His leading act, leading man, got a nomination, and his supporting actress got a nomination. But he, like Gerwig, was left out. I understand why people think she deserved it, and she did. But somebody has to be cut out. Who do you take out? Yeah, other than the uh, director of Anatomy of a Fall, which was also a female director, I, I don't think that film's as widely seen as Barbie. So you might have been able to uh, take her out and put uh, Greta Gerwig in. I, uh, no, 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 you can't because have you seen the have you seen the rating of that? Yeah, it's getting it's in the nineties. Yeah, it's in the nineties. It was. It's a very and and by the critics and the masses. Mm-hmm. So just because they don't know her. I don't think that's a valid reason for picking that maybe Gerwig is known better, but she is known better. But this this woman's work probably 
was superior to Gerwig's work. Well, I, you know, the rumblings I was hearing was that uh, she met the uh, the new rules that the academy has instated of, uh, about uh, you know meeting certain uh, qualifications. And I think the director of Anatomy of a Fall, and I may be misspeaking here. If I am, I'm I'm apologizing no, in advance. But no. uh, but I, I I'm I'm hearing that you know she might have met the qualifications, whereas Greta Gerwig did not, and that's why she got it, as opposed to her actual achievement in film. So. I, I don't know, but I wasn't well, on the director's it, branch, so this, this brings up so many things: the political thing, the, mm-hmm. the the thing about where right place, wrong time, right place, right time. Yes. Who won? The do, do you mind me asking questions like this? No, sure. Okay, who won the best actor of 1974? Uh, that was. Uh, Art Kearney for a terrific yes. film, Harry and Tonto, which I adore. That film. Uh, the 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 cat didn't get a Tonto didn't get a nomination. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> but that that's relevant today because because Al Pacino did not win the war the award. No, that's true. And uh, but but Al Pacino came from the east. He came with. He wasn't even supposed to do the original Godfather, uh, and did. Um, but th- this was Godfather Two, which is a, a, an all-time masterpiece, uh, and and so much more of what director Coppola wanted. I had a friend who saw the film with him, and he kept saying, "Slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down." That he'd made. He, the first one he made, he romanticized it, the original Godfather, which he had to, and it's it's a very very good film. But the second one was his own personal vision, was was Coppola's personal vision, and um, but Pacino was not supposed to be in it originally, and. Uh, Art Carney getting the best actor, he he deserved it on some way. He earned it on some way, the same way that that so many people do. But that's a problem with awards. Yeah, says one who's never won one. <laughs> Nor have I. Uh, yeah. Well, well, well I, I I'll give you the Macklin Award if you give me the if you give me the. The Adam Award. There we go. We'll give you okay. the Adams, the Adams Corner. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I go around the corner some, <laughs> sometimes. That's a problem. Uh, well, we'll talk about a couple other uh, films here. And talking about uh, Oscar-nominated films that are somewhat forgotten uh, from 1974, Claudine is one of those. Diane Carroll got a Best Actress nomination for that film, which is about the romance between a garbage collector played by James Earl Jones and right. Diane Carroll is a a single mother of uh, I think six children in the film I can't remember uh, but uh, again this was kind of a sleeper film that came out of nowhere and it featured music uh, songs by Curtis Mayfield a couple of which uh, actually made the top 40 charts uh, so right. this was another one of those uh, films that you know Oscar nominated but just completely forgotten today uh, Claudine and uh, I I, uh, I I think it's a good film that that needs to be uh, well, I, I, I think why it's forgotten today is black cinema is so much more effective um, 
you know, one of the one of the early great black films was made made nothing but a man was made made by white guys, mm-hmm. and now after Spike Lee and so and and the 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 tremendous and, and Ava, um, this is, uh, there's been so much quality that a film like that like Claudine that was borderline was good but borderline yes. important it was maybe important because of its time but when it's when it's compared to the the artistry that black uh, filmmakers have made since it it just doesn't compare well i i yeah i, I um i'm with you on that it's it's it is a bit of a slight film but but nevertheless, I mean, you know, I, I don't think there was an uh, an, um, an actress, uh, African American actress, who had been nominated for Best Actress before Diane Carroll. I think she broke that glass ceiling for that film, but okay. I, I could be wrong. Uh, but I, I believe that's the case. Well, anyway, we'll move along to something that I know was not Oscar nominated, but made quite a bit of money that year. It was Richard Rush's Freebie and the Bean, starring James Caan and Alan Arkin. Uh, this uh, was a film that you know uh, it, it it did quite well, but you you wouldn't find it in the Oscar uh, race at the end of the year. <laughs> I'd have to go back and I'm and reviewed it. And I have nothing, no no idea what I said. Okay, well I would I would be interested uh, to. But that uh, that may be the fault of my forgetfulness yeah. rather than the film's <laughs> worth. I know Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of Freebie and the Bean, and he speaks of it often. So, uh, and you know, I have a fondness for it. Uh, it recently came out on Blu-ray, courtesy of the Warner Archive, a couple of years back. They did a great uh, restoration of it, and it was, uh, you know, it's filmed in Panavision, so you need that. Uh, you know, you need a, it, for years. It was on VHS, and it was cropped, and it just looked horrible. But thankfully, it's out there in a, in a great transfer now. So, uh, and it's. Um, Richard Rush, who would go on to do the uh, the Stuntman uh, a few years later, <laughs> which is considered to be one of the one of the classic uh, films of the early '80s, uh, I would say. So anyway, we'll move on to and you talk about Coppola. Now we we, we you know we know uh, Francis Ford Coppola did the Conversation, obviously nominated for Best Director for that and Godfather Two. But people tend to forget in 1974 he also penned the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, which was directed by Jack Clayton. Uh, that's an, and that's the one thing that people tend to forget. You know, uh, Coppola was busy directing, but not only that, he was also busy writing. And The Great Gatsby is a film that they've had a lot of trouble uh, getting a, a, an adaptation that completely uh, works, uh, you know. And I don't think this one uh, works either uh, totally, but it, it has its moments. But it's it's interesting that that was uh, another yet another Coppola project in the same year as those other two gargantuan films we still talk about. I, I'm my favorite writer is uh, Scott Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. and it just didn't have the the depth mm-hmm. of of the novel. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right on that. Um, now another film that was released a tale of uh, end of 1973, but was still making its way to the, around theaters in early 74 is The Three Musketeers, directed by Richard Lester, which uh, this film actually caused a, um, a a bit of a well, they got the uh, Salkinds into some legal trouble. The producers of the film because they they had so much footage, they decided to 
turn uh, take the three musketeers and divide it into another film the four musketeers without telling the actors they were going to make two films out of one and so they tried to get out of paying them uh but the three musketeers is considered to be by a lot of people one of the best adaptations of that novel speaking of adapting novels this is the Dumas novel of course and it's you know you've got uh, Faye Dunaway again who would go on later in the year to do Chinatown and uh you've got uh, Richard Chamberlain Michael York uh, it's quite a quite an impressive cast and it's uh if you like Richard Lester's style of humor uh it's it's one that uh, and some people respond to it some people don't uh but it's uh it's it is a Richard Lester film through and through so I wanted to oh. Charlton Heston told me he loved working with uh, Lester. Yes, he's in it too. That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. Glad you brought that up. And uh, that's one that's one of his favorite directors that he worked with. Yeah. And another one of the uh, biggest grossing films of the year, it was uh, Disney's Herbie Rides Again. <laughs> but that actually, was, I don't think that made the top ten. No, that made the 11th. It probably didn't. But, it made the 11th. Yeah, but it's amazing that they waited so long to do a sequel because the original Love Bug was 1969, and, and here we are seven years later, and uh, the, or, or rather five years later, I'm sorry, uh, and, and it took them that long to get a sequel in production, but they that they did, and they did two more after that, so we just wanted to throw those out there for what it's worth. And then uh, you have the Sugarland Express, of course, uh, Steven Spielberg's theatrical uh, feature debut, uh, which didn't do very much for him. But it did pave the way for him he, uh, getting the gig to direct Jaws because the same producers produced the Sugarland Express, you, uh, David Brown and uh, uh, um, um, Richard Zanuck. I'll get it out. So, uh, yeah, so this was uh, the year of Sugarland Express in early 1974. And then, um, and then we'll move along to a couple of the Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry is another uh, film that... Did pretty well. Um, didn't make the top. Did not make the top. Let me t- give you. I, I have the list mm-hmm. here of the top twelve. Sure. Blazing yeah. Saddles, Blazing Saddles, Towering Inferno, Trial of Billy Jack, Fourth Young Frankenstein. Yes. Earthquake, Godfather Two, Number Six, Airport, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. Yes. <laughs> Longest Yard. Murder on the Orient Express and Ingrid Bergman won the Oscar, uh, won supporting Oscar. Yeah. Herbie rides again, eleventh and twelfth was Benji. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Benji did did uh, that came out of nowhere and of course led to a series of Benji films. But yeah, that that was a that was definitely a surprise. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. Uh, but yeah, so the Lords of Flatbush is one that we want to mention for 1974 because this was. Uh, uh, Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, in one of his first major roles, he had had small parts, you know, in uh, Bananas, Woody Allen's Bananas, and uh, some other things. But this was one of the first films where he was featured prominently, and I know that some people hold this film in high esteem. I think it's a little sluggish for my taste, to be honest. But uh, Henry Winkler uh, was, of course, uh, had... This was around the time that Happy Days was making its debut on television, so right. they they capitalized on that because he plays a, uh, a a greaser in the film as well with the the leather jacket and all that type stuff. So they tried to tie that in, but uh, I uh, Lords of Flatbush just never quite 
did it for me, but uh, I know some people are a fan of it, so I wanted to throw it out there because it is a, a, a 1974 film that is still spoken of. And the Parallax View, now we can talk about that. You probably have something to say about that. That's uh, uh, obviously Alan J. Pecula, uh, Warren Beatty, considered to be one of the great uh, conspiracy thrillers, I would say, of the 1970s. Yeah, I overrated, I mean, I, excuse me, I underrated it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't, sometimes you have to get in the, in the, on the wavelength of a film. And there were some things that I, I, I was frustrated by or bothered by. But the more I've seen it, the more it's, it's wavelength It doesn't resolve much, except it it, it ends everything. Um, but I I think it's a very 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 well made film. Now that's a, that's a film that has improved over time for me. Yeah, I think so too. And and the uh, cinematography by Gordon Willis is uh, uh, quite spectacular. Yes. Uh, that widescreen it's uh, filmed in Panavision and it uh, just looks beautiful. Uh, he does such a great job of, as he always did, uh, you know. So, but uh, in July we had a pretty successful film that would. Uh, 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 well, there were four. Se- it spawned four sequels. Count them four. Uh, Death Wish, <laughs> Charles Bronson. <Yeah. laughs> we have to mention that. Uh, so that was a a film that uh, uh, you know is an adaptation of a. Uh, I think Brian Garfield was the novelist and. Um, it, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, it was a pretty... That's hit. a strong, it's a powerful film. It the, is, the, yes. It didn't need anything else. It stands alone. Mm-hmm. Um, Stallone was an interesting guy because when he wrote Rocky, he, he wrote it and he wanted to direct it. And he wrote it not as a, not as a uh, Cinderella story, but as a in the gutter, crude, bad, not bad, a language, crude language, trying to capture that kind of genre, and they changed it and gave the direction. He, he insisted he he had to direct. Well, he didn't. They gave it to John Avildsen, who won the Oscar for directing it. Mm-hmm. And I remember being. At a, a, a not a screening when when Stallone was in front of the the presser, and his wife, his blonde wife, uh, was his photographer, and uh, when he became successful, he left her. Um, so uh, Stallone was was really really iconoclastic as. Uh, he was an icon as as Rocky, but he's Avildsen really is a much much better director than he was. Yeah, yeah, he he uh, he. I don't know that the first Rocky would have done as well as it did had it not had Avildsen's guiding hand. And uh, oh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Yeah. It absolutely wouldn't. I think. No. Yeah, I, I I don't believe that it would have. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so we'll, we'll mention a couple other 70. Uh, we're, we're in the summer of 74 now. The Tamarine Seed, which is, uh, this is a Blake Edwards film. It's at that time where he was getting ready. To, he was having a lot of trouble 
you know, we had the ca the Carrie treatment and uh, Darling Lily. He had a, a series of flops there uh, before he got his career going again with the Pink Panther films when he uh, started those again in the, the following right. year in 75. But the Tamarine Seed was yet another in a, a list of films that didn't do very well for him. And then there was Bank Shot, which is a quasi-sequel to The Hot Rock, although it has a different cast uh, than the, uh, the the original film. Um that was another one. I wish I'd known that we were going to go at it this way because I, I would have read my reviews and <laughs> know what I, I thought about it at the time. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm just I, like I said. If you don't have any thoughts, it's no big deal. I just uh, I'm just throwing some. Oh, I always out. have a thought. Yeah, well, you... I never have no thoughts. Come on now. <laughs> Well, you may have one on this next title. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. I do. I put it on my top ten. Okay. Very good. Because I think it's his most underrated film. Because, and, and Charlton Heston uh, worked on the film with him. Uh, what, what, what was it? And anyway, and he says you have to become his best friend, Sam Peckinpah. You have to go drinking and out to whorehouses every night with 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 Sam. But Sam also had a had a uh, an idealism, and despite all the violence, I think this film. Um, what did I say about it? I think I have some note of. I have my top ten of the year. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I said it was one of his foremost moral statements. You may not see that in the in the outer limits of the of the film, but I think it's a it's an underrated film. Mm -hmm. I think so. In the uh, in the Sam Peckinpah canon, it is not up there with uh, the Wild Bunch or or some of the other things he did. But well, it, no, no, nothing is up there with the Wild Bunch. <laughs> The Wild yeah. Bunch and and uh, Billy and uh, uh, Billy Billy the Kid uh, yep. are are Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and extra yeah the Stardogs. yeah is the other one yeah so those are all yeah well Longest Yard uh, directed by Robert Aldrich was a pretty successful film of the year uh, it, it did it certainly certainly didn't do poorly and of course this was a Burt Reynolds was definitely a, a bona fide movie star, but this further cemented his uh, bankability, I guess, uh, this film. And a terrific supporting cast here, Eddie Albert and, um, uh, is, the, is the warden in the film, and there's some, some uh, just, just, he's surrounded by great yeah, characters. Yeah, it, it was in the top ten. It finished ninth in box office. Yeah. A, a really strong film. I mm -hmm. think it's, a, it's uh, true to... The athletic spirit and the, the, the good story. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I uh, revisited it not too long ago. It does hold up? Yeah, and it's Robert Aldrich doing what he did. You know, he had a certain style. Uh, that was a film that I don't think should have been remade. That, I would agree. Yes. Why sure. did they remake the uh, Magnificent Seven? My yeah. God, there are um, some films that you just shouldn't <laughs> just shouldn't be remade. Don't That's... remake Citizen Kane. <laughs> Don't rewrite uh, Catcher in the Rye. Yes. There are some things that stand alone, and boy, they should stand alone. Yes. We we could do a whole other show about that, and maybe we will yes. at some point. <laughs> 
so we're getting into the fall of the year. We had Juggernaut, which was a, a film that Richard Lester took over after the Three Musketeers. After he directed that, it was a uh, it's about a uh, ship with a bomb on it, and it's more of a procedural than a typical disaster film. And it's mm-hmm. got a really interesting cast. Uh, and he basically took took over the film when the original director was fired and got it back on track and got it, uh, I think, finished in just a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, but I rewatched that one last year too, and and again, an interesting disaster film that's kind of a non-disaster film, even though it, it deals with a a bomb on a ship. Uh, so that that's one that I wanted to throw out there, and a couple other ones: The Gambler with um, James Caan. Uh, this is good uh, film. Yeah, good film. James Toback. Uh, again, yes. remade and not as good. Not very but, well. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, the original is strong. The Taking of Pelham 123, of course, this was... Uh... Again, a film that didn't need to be remade. Yes. Um, but another another entertaining, uh, effective movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the original is solid. No, yeah, you can't, you can't improve upon that, that's for sure. Uh, John Waters' Female Trouble, which, uh, you know, certainly had the... Uh, it's, it's a cult item, but uh, it's, it's a film that, you know, it was his follow-up to uh, Pink Flamingo's. And it's uh, uh, Divine doing what Divine did best. But uh, if you uh, if you're a fan of that sort of thing, and there were you know it was one of these films that uh, you know did well at midnight screenings. But it is worth mentioning because it was a '74 release. And uh, a couple there's a trio of films. Now wait here. a minute! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah. You said it's worth mentioning because it was released in 1974. Is that the standard <laughs> that we're now coming to? Well, what what I meant was it it, it is talked about, you know, whether you have ah, a taste for it or not. Okay. But it, it's a cult right. it's a cult film that people do remember. So uh, and yes. the, the Criterion Collection has released it, so it, it does warrant some mention, I believe. Uh, okay. <laughs> so. Well, this next film is one that uh, I had the pleasure of speaking one of the cast members from this film just last week. Uh, it's Christopher Norris, who's one of the last surviving cast members of Airport 75. And, uh, you know, it was a uh, sequel to one of the uh, to the original Airport, which was a Best Picture nominee. And it's, uh, you know, it was, uh, the Poseidon Adventure, of course, uh, kind of got everything on a um, disaster film trend or whatever. And Airport 75 continued that trend. And there were a trio of them at the tail end of the year, but Airport 75 was the first one out of the gate. Uh, and Charlton Heston is in this and Earthquake, shooting them, I believe, simultaneously from what uh, Christopher Norris had told me last week when I spoke with her about this uh, film. But uh, it's it's um, it has quite a cast. You've got Gloria Swanson in here. It's her last uh, theatrical film. Uh, you've got uh, Linda Blair in her first film after The Exorcist. Uh, great character actors like Norman Fell, Jerry, Jerry Stiller, um, uh, Conrad Janis. Uh, you've got Eric Estrada, pre-Chips. Uh, he's one of the the, uh, the pilots. Uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Dana Andrews. I mean, it's an amazing cast. And uh, so say what you will about it. It may be worth seeing. If you're a fan of old Hollywood, It's it may be worth your time to, to go re- uh, in, uh, to revisit airport 75 for that reason alone and air and karen black of course I, how could i forget she's the stewardess who has to land the plane so anyway um and uh, texas chainsaw massacre of course is a classic horror film that was released in the uh, october of that year um i don't know what i can add to that that hasn't been said already uh i know um you know 
it's just uh it's a film that just keeps on giving with all the sequels that keep getting made and remakes and <laughs> but it is a great film it is a great film and uh, one of the greatest horror films in in my estimation ever made uh you know it's it's it packs a punch so uh you know and then the odessa file was uh based on an uh i think that's a frederick forsyth uh, novel it was based on that. That was released in the tail end of the year. And then we get into November. We're getting uh, just a real, really quickly. We'll run through a couple of these and see if you have any thoughts. Uh, we have uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, that's uh, the, the Brian De Palma film. Um, not really successful when it originally came out, but has now garnered a cult following and uh, gets a lot of life in revival screenings. And I think they even have a Phantom of the Paradise fest once a year. Uh, where fans of the film can unite. But uh, at the time, didn't, didn't do a whole lot for De Palma's career. Paul Williams contributes all... He's the lead actor in the film and contributes all the songs. Uh, he was uh, obviously at the top of his popularity then, too. So, um, yeah, I like Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, I, I get what he was going for, and so it's a, it's a film that I have a lot of fondness for. And then uh, Lenny, Bob Fosse's Lenny. My, my favorite uh, De Palma film is uh, Blowout. What oh, do you think too, of that? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm a Philadelphian, and uh, to me that was a, that just was a terrific movie. Yes, I couldn't. Uh, yeah, that, that there's a poster. I have one sheet of that hanging up in my living room. So yes, my oh. fine. You can you can uh, instantly when you walk in my front door, you can see it. It's to your right, and anybody that comes into my home knows immediately. Hey, this this guy's well, a big fan that, of blowout. That tells a lot about both of us. <laughs> when you walk into my house, right in the in the entryway, is uh, a, a picture that uh, Chuck Jones wrote for uh, drew for me, and you have. Blowout, <laughs> welcoming your guests. <laughs> well, some of us aren't lucky enough to rub shoulders with the greats like Chuck Jones. I wasn't that lucky, but uh, but uh, I'm glad you were because yes, I am a huge. I want to talk about. I want to mention one other. I've been. Yes. I'm. 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 I'm ashamed mm -hmm. of myself for being such a name dropper tonight. I don't like that, but I. We're on that. I'm on that level. I love it. I stood on in the in the set of of Earthquake. I stood next to Ava Gardner, mm. and I had I didn't say anything. I I could pheromones were in the air. Uh, <laughs> the performance was terrible, but Ava Gardner, I have never. One time with with uh, Ingrid Bergman, but n never. I mean, what a what a what a what an experience that was. Yeah, that I, was the one I remember most from from uh, earthquake. Yeah, it I caused was... an it caused an earthquake in my in me. <laughs> an emotional earthquake. <laughs> yes, as it were. Yes. Well, uh, let's let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, do you while we're on the subject of earthquake, do you have any other uh remembrances of your time spent on the set that come to mind that are worth mentioning or just just have Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Let's sure. hear. That, that, that's Okay, uh some of the things about earthquake. Let me let me well, let me try and remember. Um I interviewed Mark Robson, the director. Mm -hmm. And he, it was kind of sad because he was making it as a professional, 
Um, but he had made two films about Vietnam and, re, and one called uh, the, the Lost Command with Anthony Quinn and the other called Limbo. And both had failed dismally because people didn't want to see that. They didn't mm. want to see the, anything about Vietnam, as a, he said. And so he lost being a personal director and became a professional Earthquake was a very, very successful, entertaining picture, but the quality probably was second rate. Um, it won only one Oscar. Now here's a here's a here's a question nobody will get. It won an Oscar for what in in Earthquake, and it, it's pro- it's it, it should have won that. But uh, what did it win for? Well, it was Only a, one. It had to have been a technical award, I, I'm sure. Yes, it was a technical award. I will tell you, it won an award for sound because they created Sense Around, oh, yes. which just made you think, sit in the theater and feel that you were experiencing shaking. Mm-hmm. The sound Sense Around create, was created just for that film, although they were going to use it. Later in Midway, I don't think they did. I think it was only used for that one particular film. Uh, I also met Gabe uh, Gabe Dell, who was one uh, was in the Bowery Boys films, and we had dinner together. We went out in the evening, and he he called his friend, who was one of my heroes, um, Hans Hall. And I got to speak to Hans Hall on the phone. Oh, wow, People yeah. probably don't know Hans Hall. I do. But he was the Bowery yes, Boys. He, yes, the Bowery Boys. And so I uh, did come away with some with Ava and Hans. Well, uh, that's not that's nothing bad. That's not that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing to scoff at. Well, yeah, there were some. Uh, you know some of the other cast from the film. There was George Kennedy. I don't know if any if you had any interactions with any of these while you were there. Uh, Lauren Green, Monica Lewis, Jean Bujold, Richard Roundtree. Uh, yeah, no. And okay, just just out of curiosity, I got I got an hour ahead and a half with Heston. As I told, I don't know whether we said it on the. Uh, did we just talk about it before, or did I already say it? Well, you, with, you, with, uh, with I'm not sure we were rolling, but you can you can repeat it. It's fine with me. Uh, you can, I know yeah, you said well, it was a, it the was one a with Heston. I just wanted to tell people, if, maybe you have something like that in your life. I had had changed my mind about Heston, thinking he was just the NRA man. This is just, and he was the most intelligent interview I've ever had mm-hmm. um, on the. On the set or in the in the dressing room uh, for an hour and a half, he would follow up. He would he would. You know, I had forgotten that entirely. Um, I was really. I I thank you for bringing my attention to the past because I I had a complete misconception, not remembering the experience of of him being. So um, frank and um, following up and developing answers and 
and, and he was he was a great interview. Well, yeah, and I've I've generally heard that uh, from most people. Now, as I said, I spoke with Christopher Norris last week, and she said that he was he showed up for his you know when he was in a scene on Airport seventy five, but he was not there unless he was absolutely needed but it may have been because he was dividing his attention with earthquake at the same time because uh, they were released just a month apart so he he may have you know he, he may have just been really busy so that may have uh been the reason. i got the feeling also he he he's and this this was his flaw that he has a hard time relating to female actresses if you think of all of his films, uh, he had chemistry with very, very few of them. And in, we talked about, because I was her friend, Tom Grice, the director, uh, maybe the only director I was her friend of, but uh, a film that he did, Will... Will, uh, Will Penny. Uh, well, yeah, Will Penny. And... He had a chemistry with that, with the with Hackett with Joan Hackett the mm -hmm. actress, but that's one of the few that he ever had any kind of of chemistry with. He just wasn't. There was something about him. The thing that he he hated was was women arriving on the set late, um, and it's it's, it's his flaw mm -hmm. of not being able to. Um, find a find a way to have chemistry with many, but he he liked acting with her very very much, and he liked Gene Simmons mm -hmm. very much, who he who he acted with before. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, he always struck me as a consummate professional, and he he always got the job done, as they say. So, uh, yeah. Now now were you uh, when you were invited to come to the set of Earthquake. Were you living in Los Angeles at that time, or did they? Oh just... God, no! I was teaching in, in at the University of Dayton. Okay, so they. Fl I was a film critic for the Journal Herald, uh, okay, the morning newspaper, and I had a friend, not a friend, a contact, because I was one of the, the smart guys in, in the media, <laughs> uh, who set up. Uh, I, in fact, I, I was there. I had interviews of, let's see, I had six days of interviews. Um, I would interview Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, John Wayne, Vilma Sigmund, who, who was the cinematographer, and I, I liked him very, very much. And he did Canoe, and I, I was at his house for, for dinner, and he had the canoe in his backyard. That appeared in in the Deliverance. Yeah, wow! And then I visited Howard Hawks in Palm Springs, and Scorsese. When you were out on, do you remember when you were out in L.A.? Do you remember Restaurant Row with with all the? There's one street that La Cienega, I think. Of course, yeah. That, uh, that had all his apartment was at the top of that street. Um, Marty's. Uh, uh, apartment and I interviewed him and then I had a, an interview with Robert Wise so I did six very fulfilling or satisfying interviews oh wow at you, that uh, time. you're very uh, prolific 74 yeah 
just knocked them all out at once one time. I, yeah, I was just wondering about the logistics and traveling out there and uh, how that all worked out. And so, yeah, um, so, well, that, that's, that is very interesting. I, 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 I keep saying I came along at the right time. Yep. I mean, today, everybody's a film critic. In, in all my life, everybody's been a teacher. Um, and I uh, maybe it wasn't a good idea that one of my, as an independent teacher, I was turning, making the students, not making them, showing them how to be independent and turning against their parents' values. <laughs> yeah. It's, but uh, uh, no, so I, I, it was time and place. I, I, I don't think I could do it today. No, I, no. I'd probably get fired for teaching. <laughs> and I, 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 I really like podcasts like this, but I, I am just not a troller. I just, I just, so many people are non-entities making stupid statements, and that just doesn't appeal to me. Well, I, I. I... That shows how out of how how out of the time I am. Well, I guess I am too because we're we're simpatico on that. So, uh, yeah, I I I I don't I try not to when it comes to social media. I try not to do anything that's going to instigate an argument. I'm here to share knowledge with people and hear uh, and you know share the stories like the ones you have. Uh, those are the things that I'm interested. In. Preserving our film history to me is what Adam. It's all the about. audience wants to know something. Have you ever in your life had an argument with anybody? Oh, you are yes. The nicest, you are the nicest guy I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so, you're too kind. Yes, I've had, I've had my, you know, I can, let's put it this way. If I disagree, I'm not afraid to say it uh, if, if, if the situation warrants it, you know. And, I, and if you ever right. read any of my reviews, you certainly will see that I can get very opinionated yes. when it comes to okay. To films, uh, because if I, you know, because last year I was in the minority, I uh, did not love Barbie, did not hate it. Same with Oppenheimer, um, and I took a lot of flack for those uh, films for not jumping on the, the the bandwagon with both of those. But you know, I, I, again, I, I thought they were good films, not great films, and uh, so you know, I I can be defensive if I need to be, uh, but we won't we won't argue. But I think. Oppenheimer is the best film of the year, and it reminds me of the 70s mm -hmm. because it does have depth and it does have character, and it does. Um, it just it's it's made by a filmmaker at the at the top of his, at least I think at the top of his acumen. Yeah, he certainly uh, he he certainly skilled in uh in the um the area of filmmaking and there's no there's no questioning that i just you know some of his choices just you know they just don't um uh, it's just not to my taste and that doesn't make it a bad what? film yeah no sure but uh and that's a personal thing but uh but anyway well so before we wrap up i'll just throw out a couple more titles that were 1974 because we're so close to the end of that year and i'll just throw a few more of them out before we wrap up uh, there was lenny bob fossey's lenny i don't know if you uh, had any opinions on that, or you know. I was disappointed. Uh, he, he it got a it got a best. It was one of the five nominees for best picture mm -hmm. of the of, of seventy four, and I just didn't think it. It was I 
I was not, I didn't think Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman was, was raw enough. Mm-hmm. And that the film didn't, didn't really, um, tell the truth. Right. And that is, that is, a, of, of, of all, all people, you should tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I, and of course it was based on the stage play. So that probably, it's a little stagey at times. I don't know, but I, I think well, it's photographed incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, one of my, one, one of my major qualities as a, as a critic is if it is a true story, is it truly told? Mm-hmm. And so many true to- true stories are not truly told, and I I didn't think that one was truly told. Yeah, when uh, yeah, there's no need to fictionalize when the truth is more interesting or as interesting, I should say. And I said stagey. That's probably a wrong assessment. I probably want to retract that statement. Uh, but anyway, but we'll. Uh, uh, we're, we're like I said, so close to the end here. We have a woman under the influence. This is the Cassavetes film that a lot of people high and uh, hold in high regard. Cassavetes films are just uh, not quite my cup of tea. The ones I've seen, a woman under the influence is, is one that I have never seen. But the few that I have seen just didn't really uh, do it for my sensibilities. Uh, but I know that he's held in high regard by a lot of serious film uh, folks and who, film scholars. What, 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 who is his wife? Oh, uh, General Gen- Rollins. Yes, I had a good relationship with her, and I'm out in the in a in the uh, in Westwood, walking through a graveyard mm-hmm. where um, Marilyn Monroe is uh, in, interred. Yes, I've been there. And Westwood I look down. Yeah. I look down, and I'm walking on the grave of John Cassavetes. And I didn't even know he was gone. Was that a shock? Mm. Um, I I think his films are are per, are surely, surely personal. And I think Woman Under the Influence was a really strong film. But I absolutely do 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 uh, understand that you have to get on a wavelength. And sometimes you don't want to, and sometimes you can't, and sometimes you shouldn't. So when, when, uh, so I respect that, that opinion. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I have not, uh, with all, all, um, like I said, I can't really comment on Woman Under the Influence because I never saw it, but I need to, and I need to make that happen. And, uh, so that's on the to-do list and I need to, uh, it, it is a blind spot. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you have to go not saying the film has to work out this way, but the but the film is its own truth, it has its own truth, and I have to understand that. Mm-hmm. And I think with a film like that, there are so many obstacles to that kind of a, of a uh, independent movie independent filmmaker um that that have to be recognized yeah yeah very by, by the way before we we hang up i want to apologize to the audience for name dropping i i period well i love it i'll be honest because a lot of these people are long gone 
and you are the only connection we have to them and their personal stories. And so I love it when you name drop because, you know, they're no longer around to tell their stories. And so the only thing we have are people that actually rub shoulders with them or, or got to know them and it, and it helps personalize them in a way. And so that for that reason, I, I personally enjoy it. Uh, so Thanks. I, I appreciate that. I, I really do. I appreciate it. It helps to, uh, like I said, humanize them, I guess. So, of course, Murder on the Orient Express was a uh, Sidney Lumet film at the tail end of the year in November, and that uh, did well, uh, like as you mentioned earlier, uh, netting an Oscar for uh, Ingrid Bergman. And, um, of course, we've already talked about Godfather Part Two, so we'll not go there, or Young Frankenstein. By the way, by, by the way let's, let's talk a little, little bit about her. Oh, She's sure. my favorite actress. Mm-hmm. I thought she had she was brave and she was human. She humanized her characters. She was intelligent. Um, what's your sense of her? Oh yes, absolutely. And she exuded intelligence and sensitivity and yeah, all those good qualities that it, it came yeah. across. So yes, uh, and you know she had a a career that uh, you know I uh, my father was a big fan of Intermezzo. The film she made in 1939 yeah, right. that uh, wow. think that might have been her American debut. I want to say I could be wrong. That's the one with um, Leslie Howard, who was also in Gone with the Wind. He was killed in a plane crash tragically, and uh, right. uh, so my dad was a tremendous fan of that. And I actually own that on Blu-ray uh, from 1939. That's it's a it's um it's a quite quite a good film. And so right from that first film, uh, you just knew she had something. You can sense it right there. Uh, and like I said, I grew up with that one. It was, it was, uh, uh, it is so ironic that she doesn't much like Casablanca. <laughs> I know, right? It's true. <laughs> I mean, she's, I think she's come a little bit more accepted because the audience loves it, mm -hmm. but she didn't, she didn't have very, very uh, strong, uh, affirmation of it. Yeah, and I think she was really good right up till the very end of her life. Uh, just a couple of years before she passed, she had been suffering from cancer, and she made Autumn Sonata with Ingrid, Ingr Ingmar Bergman, rather. Yes, and, uh, yes. I think that film is one of Ingmar Bergman's best films. It is a powerful, powerful film. She's powerful in it. And uh, when, when, when is the last time you heard Ingmar Bergman's name mentioned? Well, you don't hear it very often. Not often enough, I'll say that. I'll tell you something else, Adam. The younger people that I go to, I, they're fine. And I say, who is Jack? Do you know Jack Nicholson? Was he a singer? <laughs> True. <laughs> and if they know him, they know him for The Shinings. What flew over the what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's really sad. You're right. You know, I wanted to do one moment of my cranky old man. Well, that we, was all, it. we we all that was it. it. We, we, we 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 I'm right there with you because I I you know in my critic circle that I'm a, a member of, there are people who openly uh, brag about having watched the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a third time, and yet there are films that they have not seen that are essential building blocks to a cinematic cinematic ed education that they have not seen and they'll tell you that they'll say oh i haven't seen citizen kane and i haven't seen this and i haven't seen that but i, I think i'll just sit back and watch the marvel cinematic universe for the third time well remember remember before the, the 60s and 70s most of the public did not consider film an art they went to it for 
to film to escape. Yeah. They went to, for pure entertainment, and the, the, the line that comes out again and again and again from that audience is, I don't want to think. Yep. And so we, we, we have lived in a time and are living in a time of revolution in film. Yeah, and it's even worse now, unfortunately. Uh, people want to think even less now than they did 50 years ago. So, yeah, it's it's really sad. It really is. But Well, anyway, we'll breeze through just a couple more of these titles, uh, and then we'll be done here. Uh, Emmanuel, of course, was uh, Sylvia Christel. Uh, this was, uh, I guess you would say, maybe softcore, but it made quite a, a stir when it came out and spawned several sequels. Uh, but it, you know, because of uh, because of its place in in popular culture, it is worth mentioning. Uh, because anybody who lived during those times, they if they hadn't seen the film, they at least know Emmanuel, and it's uh, you know, and and, and may have uh, stumbled across it on cable uh, in the wee hours of the morning, as it used to be on Cinemax and <laughs> all that. So uh, Billy Wilder contributed uh, one of his late career. Films uh, you talked about remakes early uh, earlier. This is a remake of His Girl Friday, the front page, which I just revisited last week. As a matter of fact, because uh, I had a Blu-ray sitting here that had never been opened, and I said uh, I'm going to go back and revisit the front page. I haven't seen it in forever, and uh, uh, not not one of Wilder's best films, but it has some amusing moments, and the cast is spectacular. I must say. So, uh, um, well, when you compare it to Hawks's, that's true. Uh, original. Yeah. There's no comparison. That uh, Hawks is very original. Just that is a film that probably shouldn't have been remade. You're right, and he just replaces all of that great uh, witty dialogue with a lot of uh, because this was at a time when you know adult language was uh, he didn't have to skirt around it like he used to, and so he just uh, it's a there's a lot of profanity in the film, and I'm not <clears throat> against profanity per se, but it just felt out of place. In this film, uh, to me. Oh, I that we can argue again. I'm I'm for profanity. <laughs> well, I am too in certain instances, but but not in the front page. I just didn't feel like it worked in the context right. of the film. Uh, but uh, but anyway, you know. Uh, and then uh, we ended up the year with the Towering Inferno and the Man with the Golden Gun. Of course, the 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 second James Bond film with the with the Roger Moore, and that one did very well. Uh, following the previous year they had done Live and Let Die, and of course, uh, you know, so he was on his way as James Bond. But Towering Inferno, of course, is a film that holds a special place in my heart uh, because it was the film that got ignited, for no pun intended, ignited the spark in me uh, to become a film lover because my parents made the decision to take me to see that uh, with them uh, in early 1975. It came to our small town in early 75 and um i uh was just i was only four at the time but it was like a jolt of adrenaline uh, a shock to the system i just could not it was i was an excitable child anyway and so this film was just uh and i sat there for the entire two hour and 45 minute running time just gobsmacked at the age of four i just was so entranced in this film uh my father said that i was so overcome with emotion at the scene where the cable car, uh, the cable breaks on the uh, the scenic elevator, and Jennifer Jones falls to her death, he said I was so overcome with emotion that I just got up out of my seat and spun around three times, and he finally just had to grab me and sit me, put me back in my seat. 
So um, it was just, uh, and I was in love with the movies from there on. So uh, the Towering Inferno flaw, you know, I'm sure it's not a perfect film. But, uh, you know, and I told these stories at the uh, memorial service for John Gillerman, the director. I was invited to his memorial service when he passed. And I went up there to Topanga Canyon. His widow and I had become friendly. And uh, she was so gracious to uh, invite me. And I went. And they were just so sweet to me and kind. And they said, we're going to make you an honorary Topangan, Adam. And uh, (laughs) so uh, they were good, good people. And uh, I... uh, was so glad that I got to uh, to know his widow and, and still friends with her. But uh, Towering Inferno, like I said, for e- even though flawed as it may be, and it's commercial, uh, you know, big budget filmmaking, it was the film that did it for me. And so, but, but you had taste at three years old. Uh, <laughs> it, it won. It got a nomin an Oscar nomination as one of the five best pictures. Yes. And Fred Astaire got a supporting. He did. He was beaten yes. by De Niro in The Godfather 2, which which had to happen. Yes. But uh, I I can I can only you're leaving me with the image of this uh, uh, child running and spinning around three times. <laughs> I'd ask you to do it if we were, if there was some video on this. Well, I'm still pretty excitable, even in my mid fifties. So, uh, you know, I get I get pretty excitable about things. We and and very animated. So, but uh, I'll bet you can't spin around three times. Probably not. Probably not. But um, but yeah, this this uh, it it was certainly you know. And when I, I saw the Fablemans and that scene at the beginning of the film where Steven Spielberg is uh, a little a little boy and it's depicting him watching the greatest show on earth and the train crash and he's sitting right. there just with right. his jaws agape and that yeah. made me weep because uh it reminded me of that moment and my father passed in 2021 and i i saw that and i was just overcome with emotion it really it really uh, the fablemans had problems uh but that scene really resonated with me because it brought it all back home uh, that that moment in that theater in February of 1975 for me, and you know so uh, personal personal memories there from uh, the year 1970 of a film that was released in 1974. So there you go. Let's let's end this on on a film that's just out now mm-hmm. that we both had an emotional reaction to. The uh, on Netflix. Um, the the uh, best the greatest greatest night, night of, in pop pop, yes. pop and we both had an emotional reaction and an intellectual reaction mm-hmm. and I gave it five stars yeah I gave it four four point five out of five and I probably should have given it five because I again uh, I was just I, it, it the thing that struck me the strongest about it was it, it's a time that's gone forever and will never come back again because society has just moved on uh, to a different place. And this was at a time when we all were united in the things that we watched, the things we listened to. Uh, we could go to work, go to the office or go to our job, whatever it might be, and we could stand around the, the water cooler and talk about the, the songs we were listening to or the movies. And uh, that, we're all in our own little bubbles. I'm guilty of it because I collect physical media and I get new physical media releases on a weekly basis. And so I'm busy reviewing my discs. So I'm as guilty as anybody. Uh, but there was a time when we were all united and this film just brought that back home. 
And well, we weren't. We were never all all united. This is a phenomenon. Well, I mean, this was this was this was people at their best. That's true too. Yes, performing performing good for the sake mm-hmm. of doing good. Yeah, and there were no politics. There was no ego. Mm-hmm. There was no group behind them. The singers, people, their their agents and their supporters were left out. It was just them mm-hmm. with and the, the palpable affinity that was created by that extraordinary creative experience. I, I don't think it's ever I've never seen anything like it on screen before. Yeah, it's it's a powerful film, and anybody listening here, uh, if you haven't seen The Greatest Night in Pop, it's a uh, it's quite a moving film, and we both highly recommend it. Uh, highest recommendation from both of us. So there you go. Well, well, thanks so much for coming on, uh, Tony. It's been great talking to you and having you as a, a guest on my show for the first time. I've been meaning to do it. I started the show back in September and just been meaning to get you on. And uh, so I'm glad we finally made this happen and we went through a, a, a chronological journey of the films of 1974, as it were. And there were some memories you had and uh, some memories I had. And uh, maybe some of the listeners will have their own personal memories with some of these films we brought well, up. Well, if, if you ever need an argument, call me. Call me. 